in the words of Harrison Ford. Nazis. I hate these guys. But they're the bad guys you'd love to hate. With their look and vibe essentially grabbed by George Lucas and used as shorthand for the baddies in a galaxy far, far away, we thought it was time we took a look at the influence the Nazis had on Star Wars. In particular, through the prism of the most infamous Nazi propaganda film ever made, Triumph of the Will. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Let's go. Hello there, I'm Rowan Williams. And I'm Baz McAllister. And welcome to Force Material, the show that's all about the secrets and source material of Star Wars. This week, we're tackling a topic that is, uh, sadly, much more timely than we had originally planned it to be. Uh, so Baz, this is, I know this is an episode you've been working on for a little bit in terms yeah, of pulling the notes together. Probably a month or two. Yeah. Off and on, but uh, you know, who who would have thought we'd still be fighting Nazis in 2019? I mean, it goes without saying, obviously, that when we talk about the aspects of Triumph of the Will, that kind of Nazi propaganda film that have influenced George Lucas and Star Wars, um, I don't even know who I'm saying this for the benefit of because you all know this. <laughs> yeah, but know it's this it's not it's not an endorsement in any way <laughs> yeah. of anything that any of those guys uh, believe. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, screw those guys. We are against the ideology. <laughs> Yeah. Filmmaking techniques were good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what we're going to dig into a bit this uh yeah. this week on um on the podcast. Indeed. So Baz, for those who were kind of sitting there going like what are they talking about? What <laughs> what is Triumph of the Will? Well, um not so much a documentary film as as a piece of propaganda. Triumph of the Will or a tri- Triumph des Villas? You know um, what? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm apologies to anyone who may have accidentally begun listening in Germany. Um, but yeah, for that pronunciation. But, uh, yeah, so there was a film made by Nazis for Nazis and starring Nazis. Um, it's often called important and vital in the same breath as it's called terrifying. Released in 1935, it shows the speeches and the marches at the 1934 Nazi Party Congress in Nuremberg, or the Nuremberg Rally, as it's more colloquially called, uh, which had more than 700,000 Nazi supporters in attendance. The resources thrown at this film were almost unlimited. Adolf Hitler commissioned it, and he got a credit in the opening titles as a kind of unofficial effect, uh, executive producer. Um, the, the titles is commissioned by the order of the Fuhrer. So even back then, no one, no one really knew what an executive producer did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think he was the money guy, right? Yeah, yeah or something. Um, so in the film, Hitler is presented as the man who will lead Germany to its former glory. Um, it was a kind of a make-or-break film for him in a way, coming off the back of a year in which he'd, he'd had his enemies brutally assassinated. More, more about that later. So what Hitler was trying to do was consolidate power, and he turned to propaganda ultimately to try and help. Uh, as horrible as as this film might be, and and it is for a bunch of reasons we'll get into. Um, you know, one thing in its favour, Triumph of the Will was written, directed, shot, and edited by a young thirty three year old woman. So kind of progressive by today's standards. <laughs> yes, Queen. Yes, Queen. Yeah. yeah. 
that woman was the actress, artist, and dancer Lenny Reifenstahl, who was given total control over every single shot in the film and had 30,000 extras at her disposal, uh, as well as a film crew of 172 people, including 10 technical staff, 36 cameramen and assistants, operating in 16 teams with 30 cameras, 9 aerial photographers, 17 newsreel men, 12 newsreel crews, 17 lighting men, 2 photographers, 26 drivers, 37 security personnel, 4 labour service workers, 2 office assistants, and a partridge in a pear tree. And a Nazi in a pear tree. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, she rehearsed some scenes at least 50 times. Uh, she used, so kind of a, taking a Kubrickian approach. Yeah. Uh, she used moving cameras, aerial photography, long focus lenses, music and cinematography in ways that were quite revolutionary, uh, for the time. And she won several awards, not just in Germany, but also in the US, France, Sweden and other countries. Mm. It was um, Reifenstahl's second crack at making such a film. She'd made one two years earlier at the previous Nuremberg rally. That film was called The Victory of Faith, and I'll uh, not try and pronounce that in the term. <laughs> um, and it, it did fine at the box office, even though you know she felt a bit overwhelmed and underprepared while filming it, and it was rushed into production. But it, you know, embarrassingly, it showed Hitler standing side by side with one of the aforementioned assassinated enemies. So. Hitler had every copy of it buried and hired Reifenstahl to make the unofficial sequel, Triumph of the Will. So basically, The Victory of Faith is the Star Wars holiday special <laughs> of Nazi propaganda films. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but uh, anyway, the, the two, um, Reifenstahl and Hitler apparently became quite good friends. And there were rumours that their relationship was more intimate than just friends as well. But, uh, you know, to, to suggest that as fact would be doing her a disservice as a as an artist, I suppose, you know, because uh, she was a very accomplished filmmaker, despite the motives of, of this film. Uh, so she, she later made a documentary about the 1936 Olympics that was secretly funded by Hitler. Um, she went on a US publicity tour in 1938 and, and, and talked Hitler up. She called him the greatest man who ever lived, truly without fault. Uh, on that trip, she actually met Walt Disney, who showed her through the Disney studio while Fantasia was in production. Mm. She later changed her tune after the war and after three years of being held in detention camps and said that meeting Hitler was the biggest catastrophe of my life. Ooh, a very Michael Cohen of her. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, Raffenstahl died in 2003 at the age of 101. She was tried four times and never convicted as a war criminal, either for her alleged role as a propagandist or for the use of concentration camp inmates in some of her other films. Here she is recalling how she got the job of making Hitler's documentaries. Shortly after he came to power, Hitler asked me to come and see him and explained that he wanted a film about a party congress and wanted me to make it. My first reaction was to say that I did not know anything about the way such a thing worked or the organisation of the party, so that I would obviously photograph all the wrong things and please nobody, even supposing that I could make a documentary which I had never done. Hitler said that this was exactly why he wanted me to do it, because anyone who knew all about the relative importance of the various people and groups and so on might make a film that would be pedantically accurate, but this was not what he wanted. He wanted a film showing the Congress through a non-expert eye, selecting just what was the most artistically satisfying in terms of spectacle, I suppose you might say. He wanted a film which would move, appeal to, impress an audience which was not necessarily interested in politics. Yeah, and it was a film with a very clear goal. And that goal was bigging up the Nazis for the man in the street. And it did its job amazingly well. 
it's still doing its job, isn't it, Baz? It is. Picture, if you will, listener, Hitler and his Nazis. You probably just pictured a scene from this film. Hitler ranting at a podium, massed troops lined up or marching past, throwing up the salute. You don't even think of a defeated army and a guy dead in a ditch, do you? Triumph of the Will is so powerful that it can make the Nazis still look powerful. And some 30 years after it was made, it had a powerful effect on the young George Lucas, who, as it happens, was on the lookout for Nazis of his own. Yeah, so when Lucas was studying film at USC, uh, it was one of the film schools that openly taught Triumph of the Will. So he would very likely have seen it there, and it obviously stuck. Uh, He told Esquire in 1975 that Star Wars would be the first multi-million dollar Flash Gordon kind of movie with The Magnificent Seven thrown in. But I'm also sneaking in a bit of Triumph of the Will, just so a point is made. And I've actually, you know, in in thinking about this episode, I've, I've not had much luck finding a direct quote where George Lucas has actually said that he was inspired by Triumph of the Will. Uh, that one from Esquire was actually posted on Twitter just this week uh, by Paul Duncan, who's... Um, the guy who's put together that massive Star Wars archives book that's just come out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, kind of timely for us, I Indeed guess. Indeed it is, yeah. The, according to uh, costume designer John Mollo, who's also a military expert, Lucas wanted the Empire soldiers to look efficient, totalitarian, fascist. In fact, the name Stormtrooper is a direct lift from the Nazis' Sturmabteilung and from the German shock assault troops that came before them in World War One. So... It's mired in that kind of Germanic war history. Mm. Um, Molo told StarWars.com, George made pronouncements of a general nature in production meetings. Um, first of all, he wanted the imperial people to look efficient, totalitarian fascist, and the rebels, the goodies, to look like something out of a Western or the US Marines. He said, you've got a very difficult job here because I don't want anyone to notice the costumes. They've got to look familiar, but not familiar at the same time. Yeah, Ralph Macquarie drew a lot of the designs, and when Molo saw his art particularly for the Empire forces, he tended to see them in terms of military gear. Uh, Invader's suit, he saw German First World War soldiers' trench armour, coupled with a Second World War Nazi uh, combat helmets. Mollo and wardrobe supervisor Ron Beck put together a working prototype for George Lucas in 1976. They dressed a model in a black motorbike leathers, a Nazi helmet, a gas mask, and a monk's cloak. Lucas gave it the tick, and they began Star Warsifying it. Yeah, and you can clearly see that trench armor and gas mask influence in the Mimbin mud troopers and Solo as well. Yeah, that's so right. you know a bit of a bit more modern day. The uh, Imperial officers' uniforms are also very Nazi esque. Uh, Kenneth Colley, who played Admiral Piet, told StarWars.com of being cast for the role. He said uh, the casting director for The Empire Strikes Back asked me to meet with Irvin Kirshner. I remember when I walked into his office, Irvin said to me, "I'm looking for someone that would frighten Adolf Hitler." And he sized me up and down and continued, yes, I think you're it. <laughs> <laughs> on playing the role, Collie says, obviously they were going on some sort of design for Darth Vader's men. There were echoes of the Gestapo or at least fascism in there. And that was also how I approached the role. Um, it's funny that he's one of the meekest of the Imperial officers, but he could yeah. frighten Hitler still. And speaking of Hitler, in fact, they really went all out for the Empire Strikes Back in terms of getting guys who could frighten Hitler. They hired a Scottish actor called Michael Sheard to play Admiral Ozzel. Uh, a guy who had already played Adolf Hitler twice in telemovies and, and series by this point, and he would go on to play him three more times, including in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, yeah. which is great. He's um, 
he's a really cool guy and I, I got to know him before he died um in the i think the early 2000s he died but he used to be a regular at scottish sci-fi conventions yeah right so when i lived in scotland there for 10 or 12 years i I kind of um, met him occasionally and, and became kind of friendly with him. And wow. He was a really cool guy. He used to play a teacher in a kid's TV show called uh, Grange Hill, and the teacher was called Mr. Bronson. He was like the worst teacher, <laughs> the scariest. Kind I was going to say, like yeah. a scary sort Like of a teacher. scary Nazi, like if Hitler was a teacher. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God, imagine yeah. that. But he was the nicest dude in real life. Yeah. At that point, we were, uh, we were mired in the middle of a Star Wars role-playing campaign, mm-hmm. and some of my group approached him, and said, would you record like a message as Admiral Ozzel talking to the characters in the yeah. campaign? And he did. Oh, my God. I still got the tape somewhere. Not not here, but somewhere. In an yeah. attic somewhere, yeah. Wow. Uh, and he did this kind of Admiral Ozzel line as, wow. you know, about, about our campaign. That's about so cool. The characters that were, you know, in that. So it was really good. Yeah. yeah. Well, shouts to Michael Sheard. Shouts to Michael pull, Sheard. Pull one out for Michael Sheard. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's but when when we talk about the influence of the of the of the Nazis, I mean it's not just on the Empire. Um, the clone boarding sequence at the end of Attack of the Clones uh, is very Triumph of the Will. Lots of drilling and marching in giant square formations. Oh, so one other tiny little influence. Do you, do you think there's anything in um, Journal of the Wills, Triumph of the Will? You reckon that George was kind of riffing off that when he wrote his kind of original title? Um, I mean, possibly George. George has said that has that wills, uh, as in W H I double L S, in the Journal of the Wills title. Uh, that wills means will, as in you know W I double L yeah. making things happen. Yeah, the will, um, the will of the force. The will of the force. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah, very possibly. Yeah. Uh, it's got the same kind of cadence, hasn't it? It's, yeah. Yeah. I remember I, I wrote an article for the Force Material website way back in the day uh, called "Triumph of the Wills." That was all about the the history of the the wills, the journal of the wills, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and um, I think it was Justin Bolger from StarWars dot com was like, "Yeah, nice article. Not sure about the title. Like, <laughs> don't know." Like Triumph of the Will really helped Hitler build his image in his quest to grab at power. Um, the Nazis were all about image, and they were surprisingly on brand for the nineteen thirties. Um, famously, all their uniforms were designed and manufactured by Hugo Boss. You know, not not a lot of people know that. It's become mm. more well-known in recent years. But, yeah, he was a Nazi sympathizer. And, you know, you got to admit they're snappy uniforms, like, no matter which way you... It just reminds me it. of that, is it that drill tweet where he's yeah. like, you've got to hand it to Al-Qaeda. <laughs> Next second, like, oh, I've, it's, I've just been informed you do not, under any circumstances, have to <laughs> yeah. hand it to Al-Qaeda. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and and uh, in terms of the uh, the PR machine... Um, the Nazis had propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels on the case. Now, he he was an admirer of a man named Edward Bernays, who was uh, an American, a Jew, uh, a nephew of Sigmund Freud, the great uncle of Netflix co-founder Mark Randolph, wow. and a guy called the father of public relations. Um, look, Bernays is a really interesting dude. I've been doing a bit of research into him lately. And uh, he was one of the first people in the world to uh, really use crowd psychology to make people do what he or his clients wanted. And he was on the books of a lot of powerful corporate clients in the 1930s. Uh, he encouraged more women to take up smoking in public with a campaign branding cigarettes as torches of freedom. Jesus. And, and he was also the inventor of the concept of bacon and eggs as a breakfast. Um, imagine that. So he's like Ron Swanson's hero. Yeah, he's, he's Ron Swanson's hero. Um, 
And and later in his career, in the 50s, he would leverage what is now the Chiquita Banana Company, I think it was United Fruit Company or something back mm-hmm. then, to cause the US to overthrow the government of Guatemala. That's what? a whole other story. A whole other story is how to use these bananas to destabilize a country to the point where the US could step in. Oh. But I urge you to look him up, look up Bernays, even just Google him and read the Wikipedia page because it's fascinating in its own right. So that's Edward Bernays yeah. for those who are quick on the, the B- wiki trigger. B-E-R-N-A-Y-S, I think it is. Um, so in Germany, Goebbels was watching closely to see how this was all done, and he was reading Bernays' basically textbooks that he was writing about PR. Um, Bernays said in his 1965 autobiography, the Nazis were using my books as the basis for a destructive campaign against the Jews of Germany. This shocked me, but I knew any human activity can be used for social purposes or misused for antisocial ones. Yeah, because Bernays was obviously only using his PR powers for good yeah. with his um, tor- Tortures of Freedom <laughs> cigarette campaign. I know. but so, so using the teachings of Bernays, Goebbels helped create this cult of personality around Hitler um, using propaganda. And Triumph of the Will is a direct result of this. It's, it's basically a direct result of Goebbels' research into how to make his boss look good, mm. um, basically reading Bernays' books. Um, and, you know, you have to kind of admit the empire in the same way could look pretty cool to a street rat from Corellia. Like even someone who's definitely not a joiner, Han Solo, was still influenced by imperial propaganda in Solo when he sees the Hollywood video, which, you know, in a stroke of genius, uses that upbeat version of the Imperial March as a, a, a major chord, as diegetic music just yeah. to stir up those feelings in him, you know. Yeah. Imperial recruitment is also presented as kind of cool in the first scene of the first episode of the excellent Brian Daly radio dramatization of A New Hope. Mm-hmm where uh, Luke Skywalker's hanging out in the garage, listening to the Imperial recruitment tapes for the Academy and reciting along with the voice and the stirring music on the tape, you know, dispatch your application to screening office, CO Commandant, Imperial Space Academy, your sector, and join the ranks of the proud. Mm. You know, we've, we've, we've talked about all the Nazi influences on Star Wars being influences seen in the Empire so far. You know, we've talked about the influence on Stormtroopers, Imperial officers, etc., etc., Vader. But in A New Hope, the most obvious homage to Triumph of the Will is, is not anything the Imperials are doing. It's the Rebel Award Ceremony for Luke, Han, and Chewie in the Yavin 4 Temple at the end. From the music to the visuals, it's pretty much cribbing the scene where Hitler, Heinrich Himmler, and Victor Lutze... Lutze? Lutze? He's a Nazi, who cares? Who cares? Uh, march up between massed ranks of soldiers to lay a wreath at the memorial for President and Field Marshal von Hindenburg. Uh, the blocking, the shot choices, the raised platform, it all maps on pretty accurately to uh, to Triumph of the Will. Mm. So how do we feel about Nazi imagery being used to represent the, the rebels here at the end of the film after two hours of seeing <laughs> Nazi-influenced dudes being shot and blown up righteously? Yeah, I mean, like, is this is this a subtle attempt by George to telegraph to us that you know whatever government the rebels put in place now, and and let's remember at this point, taking only a new hope as a source, the rebels are all old white men with weird beards, just like the Imperials. <laughs> um, will that government turn out to be just as fascist as the one that just got put down, or is George falling into the trap of thinking, oh, the Nazis look really cool in Triumph of the Will? Just making the rebels look cool by association would be all right, wouldn't it? Um, well, you know, I have to admit, all the standing in mass ranks and stomping in unison always bothered me in a rebel army. It just seemed like it was a bit out of character for this kind of ragtag bunch of, you know, soldiers who've been drawn from all over the galaxy who really shouldn't even be in uniform. 
Like, yeah. why, why would a rebel army even have a uniform? That's a great, that's you a know? great question. Yeah. It's, um, it, that, that, that scene is interesting on a couple of, I mean, I think it's, it's the clearest indication that like, as much as George Lucas has often talked about, you know, this is always intended as six films or nine films or 12 films. And, you know, we had that episode where we broke down that the history of that evolution over the years, um, that scene at the end of Star Wars is the clearest indication that like, no, it wasn't. Like that, because it, it feels like very definitively like the, the ending of the story. And, and, and partly because if you actually intended the Empire to still be a continuing threat after the Death Star gets blown up, mm. you're not hanging around on Yavin 4 <laughs> yeah. and having a medal ceremony. It's you're a, getting the hell out of there. To start a last Jedi, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're getting, because they know where you are now. Yeah. Why are you waiting around and having a medal ceremony? Yeah. Um, as we, as we know from, uh, one of the uh, tie-in books, Han Solo's funeral probably cost a lot of lives on yeah, Dakar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting because especially in light of that quote from George Lucas that we mentioned earlier, um, where he said, you know, I'm throwing a bit of triumph from the, of the will into Star Wars just to make a point. Yeah. It's like, well, what was that point? Yeah. And maybe it's what you're saying that to kind of visually tie the rebels to Nazi imagery at the end of the film is intended to make the point that like, uh, you know, yeah, war is bad. All all sides are, you yeah. know, it, maybe it's a bit of both sidesism from George That's Lucas. It's like I don't know the power corrupts thing. Like all governments who get in may get in with the best of intentions, but once they're in there, you know, going to start throwing the weight around. And-, mm. and and that kind of is the story of Star Wars because really, if you look at all the films, is there ever a point where the government is actually func- functioning smoothly? <laughs> you know, you look at the original films, you look at the Jedi Order, you look at the Old Republic, you just go like. Yeah, those guys were heading for yeah. an overthrowing. You, you know, you look at the Empire, obviously it's bad. Yeah. The New Republic doesn't seem to be working out very yeah. well. Uh, yeah. It's probably the best out of all the various governments we've seen. Yeah. But uh, still falls pretty pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, like even when the Empire government's working well, you've still got like a dude in staff meetings who's trying to choke people out randomly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It might be efficient, but I mean... Yeah. And, you know, the New Republic government just... I mean, the more I think about Brexit, the more I think about that's exactly what the New Republic government sounds like to me. Just a yeah. bunch of people who can't get anything done or agree on anything. Yeah. 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 And like we talked about before, that's kind of where your opening for your first order opens up. And like, yeah. well, remember, remember when you were, when you were a kid and everything just worked, you know, like, let's yeah. go back to that. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it's Trumpism, isn't it? It's Trumpism. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, and maybe that's the point of, you know, one of the points of Star Wars is like, it's, it's basically just, Basically, just uh, just saying bureaucracy, not yeah. not great, not great. No. And speaking of the first order, J.J. Abrams has said outright that the origin of the whole first order thing was the premise: what would have happened if the Nazis all went to Argentina and then started working together again? Mm. Which you know nearly happened, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know, if if we thought there was a Nazi influence in the original trilogy's imperial aesthetic, the first order dials that up to eleven. Uh, and I'm talking here about the scene on Starkiller Base, mm-hmm. where Hux gives his like Hitler-style impassioned oratory from a platform in front of red flags, while rank upon rank of soldiers listen and then throw up their arms and salute at the end. Like it's not subtle, no. But you know, 
that scene has been included to make a point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 the the clearest connection yet between you yeah. know the bad guys in Star Wars and 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 the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny that you mentioned the the Hux rally because that I think that's a really I go I, I'm sort of kind of conflicted about that scene because mm. I think it's really effective in that first of all Domino Gleason just acts the hell out of it like it's just pure evil incarnate but also like he looks. He looks evil, but also kind of pathetic, which is yeah. right for the First Order. Absolutely. And that, that's why I never bought, like, when people were kind of, have kind of criticized, like, oh, they turned him into such a joke in Episode 8. It's like, he was a joke in Episode 7. Yeah. Like, he was always, like, this kind of impotent, you know, Nazi. Like, yeah. he thinks he's this big tough guy, but he's actually just this sort of coward yeah. hiding behind this super weapon. Richard Spencer. Yeah, exactly. With, with which, yeah. floppy hair. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you better believe when someone punches him, he'll run away and cry. Yeah, 100%. You know, yeah. Someone, someone's going to, you know, someone was to egg Hux, that would be, that would be it for him. Uh, and so... I, I, um, and so I like that aspect of it. I like the, the, the shouty spittle, you know, oh, aren't we tough kind of aspect of it. I, I narratively, I kind of hate that scene because I don't, I don't, it, every time I'm watching the, like, and, you know, I rewatch Force Awakens, which is probably more often than, than, than a person should rewatch a movie. I'll be, I'll be just going, <laughs> sitting there going, this is so great. This is the best Star Wars movie. This is the best one. They got it. I don't know why I don't put this at the top of my rankings every time. It's the best. And then they get to that scene and I'm like, Oh yeah, they introduce the super weapon out of nowhere after yeah. spending the whole first half of the movie making Luke the hunt for Luke the focus. Yeah. Suddenly that's irrelevant because we have a weapon that can destroy a solar system that we've never mentioned before and why hasn't that been the focus the entire time? It just it just again it feels like a little thing where like maybe some things were changed later or yeah. the narrative came together in maybe a little bit of a haphazard way or whatever. Yeah. And it just doesn't feel it, as smooth as it could. Yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah, I feel like this should have been mentioned earlier, maybe. I thought you were going to say, you know, it takes you out because you, you realize you're just watching a reskinned Triumph of the Will. <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> this isn't Star Wars anymore. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, f- the funny thing is that scene has now played in official Star Wars canon twice mm. with the um, finale of Resistance. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, I guess we can talk about for a moment, but that course corrects this emotionally somewhat to me mm. because you spend the whole season getting to know Kaz mm. as a character from Hosnian Prime. Mm. Uh, and then at the end, you see the emotional impact of, of that destruction of his homeworld on yeah. him. You know, so yeah. I guess that that kind of um, helps a little bit to, to ram home how bad that was. Mm. Yeah, yeah I, um, I'm, a, I'm not quite as up on resistance as, as you, I'm, I'm still a fair few, decent amount of episodes mm. behind, but I think I'm going to have to do a bit of a, a marathon and, and catch up yeah. because um, it, might, it would be good maybe at some point for us to do a little season one recap yeah, pod or yeah, something. Sure, yeah. Cause I'm sure there's a lot of resistance fans out yeah. there who'd want to hear you know, about it. I don't think that's a spoiler. I don't think we've done a spoiler. There. No, it's in the trailer. <laughs> yeah. The Huck scene is in the yeah. trailer. They're yeah. like, watch it. Cause it ties that's into it. that force awakens movie. The, the kids love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, for, force awakens really, um, you know, as we say, Force Awakens really emphasized that connection between the Nazis and the First Order. And then, you know, you look at Rogue One. Rogue One continued this work of paralleling the Empire and the Nazis. So the opening scene where Krennic turns up at Urso's remote farm is pretty similar to the opening scene of Tarantino's uh, Inglorious Bastards, where Christoph Waltz's SS Colonel Lenda turns up at a farmhouse looking for hidden Jews. Mm. Uh, in both situations, he only appears a young girl who ends up being an instrument of vengeance and there are shades of operation paperclip in urso's uh, recruitment 
the program whereby the Nazi designers of the V-2 rocket were captured and recruited after the war by the US and put to work. Yeah. And it's not just on screen in Rogue One where these parallels are made as well. A month before it came out, writer Chris Weitz uh, tweeted, please note that the Empire is a white supremacist human organisation. And his co-writer Gary Whitta replied, opposed by a multicultural group led by brave women. This, of course, raised the ire of the alt-right on Twitter and the, the usual talk of boycotting the film because its writers were brainwashing kids to hate white men started up and you know where that all got to. So, yeah. yeah. Just, I mean, uh, it's not even worth <laughs> really getting into, but if someone if someone criticises a white supremacist and you take offence to it, <laughs> yeah. maybe just think about why that is. Yeah. Like, honestly. Yeah, we, we talked a couple episodes ago about how Palpatine was similar to Richard Nixon in some ways. Um, but he's he's also based uh, quite a lot on um, on other ne'er do wells from history, including Adolf Hitler. Uh, before he declares himself emperor, he's the chancellor, as was Hitler before he became the Führer. Uh, he basically created a cult around himself. Mm. Both Hitler and Palpatine are obsessed with mysticism and dark magic, if you will. Um, and in that sense, Raiders of the Lost Ark is based a little bit in fact. Uh, although obviously little is doing a lot of the work in that sentence. Hitler did send out specialized teams all over the world searching for lost religious relics. Um, also famously, Hitler was an artist, uh, a postcard painter, not a good one. Uh, he failed his entrance exams to art school and he collected art, a lot of which was, was later found. And, and Palpatine is a, is a man who clearly admires art. He's got art in his chambers and we know he loves a good Montalamari <laughs> yeah. opera. And uh, wasn't George Lucas a postcard painter in the early days of his career? Too? He was. Remember, we did yeah. that episode about he used to just sort of hang out by the beach and, and yeah. get paid to paint beach bunnies or whatever. Mm. Young, bohemian <laughs> artist George Lucas. What a time. What a time. Yeah. It's a, there's a whole other podcast in our evaluation of whether or not Hitler was any good as an artist. So just, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have to come back to that. <laughs> yeah. Hitler, as we know, was a master orator, very fond of the big speech. Uh, we do see Palpatine give one big Hitler-style speech in the Senate um, in uh, Revenge of the Sith, declaring the new order. And the Jedi rebellion has been foiled. What's happened? The chance has been elaborating on a plot by the Jedi to overthrow the Senate. And the remaining Jedi will be hunted down and defeated. The attendant on my life has left me scarred and deformed. But I assure you, my resolve has never been stronger. In order to ensure the security and continuing stability, the Republic will be reorganized into the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society. This, this very much mirrors the way that Hitler came to power, uh, basically building a private army and engineering situations where he could systematically grasp more power uh, until he could take over in the name of safety and security. Yeah, one of these such uh, grasps of power was was uh, the Reichstag fire. That was a big one. So in, in 1933, after he was sworn in, 
um, as Chancellor, Hitler didn't have a majority government, so he wanted to pass the Enabling Act to give himself emergency powers to enact laws without the say-so of the parliament. Um, the, the Reichstag, it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Nazi party didn't have enough seats to get that over the line, so Hitler stoked fears of communists. And then four weeks after he was sworn in, the Reichstag building mysteriously went up in flames. And the arson attack was pinned on a Dutch communist, Maria, Ma- Marinus van der Lubbe. And Hitler managed to parlay this into a scenario where um, he got he got his emergency powers and he had all the Communist Party politicians locked up. So even though it's pretty obvious that van der Lubbe was either paid to do the job by Hitler or took the fall for a Nazi, um, it was a classic false flag operation and pretty similar to the way the Separatist crisis was handled in Star Wars, with Jar Jar proposing to give Palpatine emergency powers to deal with the crisis that he himself had manufactured and then he never gives those powers up. There's a huge parallel as well, obviously, with Order 66 and the Knight of the Long Knives, where both Palpatine and Hitler use their private army to get rid of everyone who opposes them in one single day. Uh, in 1934, Hitler suspected that the leader of his stormtroopers, Ernst Röhm, was plotting against him, and he had the SS murder Röhm and hundreds of other commanders, basically wiping out officers like Darth Vader on a bad day. Um, Hitler also eliminated trade unions on his road to power, sending the SS to round up leaders in, in much the same way, um, as Palpatine eliminates the Trade Federation and the Techno Union after they have served their purpose. Yeah. So, you know, Palpatine's looking at the Jedi, who are the guys who've led his private army, and gone, oh, I can't trust these guys anymore. They've got to go. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, it's, it's exactly. It's just Order 66 all, it. all over. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there you go. Uh, stormtroopers are stormtroopers. Um, Imperial officers are the SS. Yeah. Palpatine is Hitler yeah. and, and also Nixon. Yeah, um, and- that's that's the thing because I, we had a guy in our mentions just this past week, and I've I'm, unfortunately I've forgotten his name. And you know it's good because like every you know obviously when people disagree with us, we we like when they you know when they let us know, and we can have a bit of a discussion. But he was kind of saying you know oh you, you're really sort of overstating the influence of of uh, Nixon on and Vietnam on Star Wars because he mm-hmm. was he was really inspired by. Uh, you know, Hitler, Roman emperors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. yeah, it can be two things. Yeah. Like it was, <laughs> he was influenced by he was influenced by Hitler and all the way and and the Nazis and all the ways that we've just talked about. Especially when you get into the prequels and all the kind of political maneuvering uh, in terms of visuals. Obviously, you know, the Nazis had a big influence on um, on the original trilogy, but then the the actual kind of history of it, as we've talked about in this episode. Uh, probably fed the most into the prequels where, yeah. you know, as, as we talked about, the, the way that the emperor rose to power is, is yeah. kind of deliberately modeled on, you know, not just Hitler, but certainly Hitler was, was part of the mix. Yeah. And that's kind of why, you know, when we talk about Nixon, it's like, yeah, it's not, it's not a one on, it's not a one to one direct mapping. Like the emperor is not just Hitler. He's not just Nixon, et cetera, et cetera. That's why, you know, in that episode, when we talked about Nixon, there was that quote where George Lucas was like, oh, you know, he was a politician. Nixon was his name. Like, obviously yeah. he's, he's exaggerating for comic effect or whatever. Like he's not saying he's literally based exactly on Richard Nixon. So yeah, I think like nothing we've said in this episode about the influence of Hitler on the emperor and the empire sort of negates anything we talked about yeah. in that previous episode. Cause I think there's a lot of stuff that goes into the kind of melting pot of, yeah. of Star Wars. It's again, just a part of the puzzle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So do, do look into Edward Bernays. I'll say that again. Yeah. Fascinating dude. Like the yeah. whole, the whole kind of, you know, he's not a Nazi to be clear. <laughs> yeah. Not, but, but not certainly he was an influence on, yeah. on, uh, said 
Nazis. Yeah, but you know all, all the stuff he got up to, all the campaigns he was involved with, and you know, yeah. it's it's amazing as well that um, there are so many corporations and companies still around today that did business with the Nazis or were basically arose out of Nazi Germany, and mm. they're they're still doing all right. Mm. And like Volkswagen's one of the most obvious ones. It's mm. it's doing fine. Yeah, um, Coca Cola Company. Um, created Fanta for the Nazis. Yeah. 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 Um, specifically because they ran out of the syrup to make Coke <laughs> <laughs> during, you know, during the war. Yeah. Um, IBM created this rudimentary software that kept track of people in the concentration camps and stuff. So, oh, yeah, okay. you know, there, there are all these, uh, and, you know, um, I think it's, um, I think it's Beckett Rensiker was the company or something that, that, uh, and now it was, it's, can't remember what it morphed into. It's another medical pharmaceutical mm. company, but that's the company that made Zyklon B is still around and mm. kind of doing all right. It, yeah. It's interesting too because you, you look at those companies and you kind of go like, "Oh, isn't it crazy that those companies that were involved yeah. with the Nazis are still around?" And there's that whole thing where you know you look at Nazi Germany and you go, "Well, how how could that happen? Like, if I was around, like I wouldn't have, yeah, I wouldn't have let that happen, or I wouldn't have part, you know, I wouldn't have condoned then any of this or whatever." And it's like not to not to turn this into an episode of like I don't know like force material go on Chapo or whatever, but like <laughs> but I mean clearly like it's not it you know just look around you it's not yeah. inconceivable I mean yeah and, and I'm not even just talking about the Trumpian stuff necessarily yeah. although certainly that too but but you know even just look at this look at the kind of technology uh, that's that's going into you know to help. Uh, the the Uyghur people be monitored or you know yeah. in, in China like the th- the the atrocities that that people are taking active part in now mm-hmm. um, that we'll probably look back on and go like oh how could how could they have done this yeah you know and and it's it's happening right now it's not just the 1940s yeah that's about as much talking about <laughs> Nazis as I think either of us wants to do for the next foreseeable yeah. future. Like you know, I have to do it in my day job occasionally now. The, the amount of times that you have to see Nazi in a newsroom now. It's 2019, people. Get it together. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. in, in a rare stroke of um, inspiration, we actually know what we're doing for the next co- couple of episodes. It is It is very rare for us. Yeah. It, the, last, the last few... Uh, yeah, we've actually we've actually got our act together and are, and are planning the episodes in advance at the moment, which is a a rare Say it state. Is so. <laughs> it's a very rare state of affairs for us. I don't know. Uh, if I can and it, deal it, with that. I level think you of could argue it backfired this week, but you know, <laughs> uh, uh, next week we'll be doing uh, a bit of a, a fan commentary. Uh, uh, PH fan, if you, if you, <laughs> oh, if you will. Yes. Uh, it, on uh, the the Phantom Menace, uh, so we're revisiting that film for its twentieth mm. anniversary. Obviously, there's a big uh, Phantom Menace panel coming up uh, at Celebration as well. Uh, yeah, that, that shouldn't be controversial unless one of the major cast members gets accused of a racial thought crime from twenty or thirty years ago. That's not going to happen. Nah, what are the odds? What are the odds? Now we'll be fine. Yeah, um, and then the <laughs> what are we doing over here? And then... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the episode after that, after our Phantom Menace commentary, um, we will be interviewing uh, Alex Kane, who is the man who uh, has just written a new book on the making of Knights of the Old Republic. Mm. So if you're a big fan of Knights of the Old Republic, and I, I get the feeling pretty much everybody in Star Wars fandom is, except for me, because I never played it. Yeah. And except uh, for the people who don't want Weiss and Benioff to make that film. <laughs> apparently, yeah. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, definitely tune in for that one. Obviously, celebrations coming up very soon. So mm-hmm. somewhere in that mix, we'll also have a celebration a recap episode. Uh, I realized to my chagrin just recently that not only are Baz and I not going to celebration, I didn't realize that recently. We already, we, <laughs> we were aware of that. Yeah. Um, I won't even be able to watch any of the panels or anything, most likely, because I'll actually be on holidays at the time that the uh, celebration occurs. I'm actually going to see the uh, Star Wars Identities exhibition at um, at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. Now, in retrospect, I could have timed it a bit better. So <laughs> seeing that exhibition didn't preclude me from also watching the uh, celebration panels, but you can't you can't have everything. Well, it's like you're having your own kind of POV celebration. That's yeah. right. My own <laughs> poor man's Star Wars celebration. Yeah. Obviously, we're doing a lot of other stuff in Sydney as well. I'm not just hanging out at that museum all weekend. Yeah, but not? if I did... I wouldn't mind. It'd be a good result. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so, but anyway, I will watch all the panels at some point uh, as I, soon as I, I get back, and we will do a recap mm. episode. So I think if you came back from that museum all day and watched the panels all night, you would just, you would explode like the Death Star or something. A hundred percent. Just too much joy for one yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's what, that's what lies in the future for Force Material over the next few weeks. Uh, for now, uh, feel free to drop us a line. Uh, we're at Force Material on Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, or forcematerial at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Uh, have you seen Triumph of the Will? Have you seen or, Triumph or of the Will? Yeah. Do, do you think that, you know, like its predecessor, it should be rounded up and, yeah. and destroyed? <laughs> destroyed, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and how how do you feel about the kind of connections uh, between between mm. the, the Nazis and uh and the Star Wars yeah. saga. It's, you know, usually I can kind of separate art from the artist, but it's pretty hard <laughs> in this case, you know. Uh, yeah, you need, know. needless to say, uh, no no neo-Nazis in the mentions, please. Yes, please. Uh, Neo-Nazis need not apply to listen to this show. Yeah. Um, I'm Rowan Williams. I'm Baz McAllister. And you've just taken your first step into a larger world. <laughs>